Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I am joined in our critic series by a new interlocutor, Mr. Sorab Amari. Sorab is one of the editors and founders of Compact Magazine, which I think is now just on its first anniversary and seems to have been quite a success in its first year, attracting a lot of attention online and in the broader media environment. So it seems like a new entrant in political and intellectual and economic conversation. And the new entrant of an unusual character, it is a radical magazine, not quite left, not quite right but provocative. Sorab, thank you very much for joining me. I'm glad to know that you are interested in David Lynch like I am. This is what we'll be talking about today, Mulholland Drive. But before we get to Lynch and the movie, please introduce yourself for our audience since uh, it's your first time to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. My name is Sorab Amari. The main hat that I wear is one of the founders and editors of this new magazine, Compact. The name suggests alliance or coming together. Specifically, we publish writers of the left and right and try to break past some of the stale barriers between the two that have become less and less important as events have developed in the United States and around the world. The categories left and right have become more unstable and that's made it kind of interesting intellectually. And so that's who we are. People can find us at compactmag.com. I'm also an author of several books, most recently a book titled The Unbroken Thread, in which I make a case for tradition broadly understood. And I have one coming out in August titled Tyranny Incorporated, which is about how we Americans are subject to coercion in the private economy in our lives as workers and consumers. We're used to thinking of coercion as something that government does or only government does. But the problem since the industrial age is that we're also subject to government-backed coercion in the private economy. So that'll be out in August if you want to check it out. And Mulholland Drive might be my favorite movie of all time. So I'm really delighted to join you to discuss it. I was aware you liked Mulholland Drive from online chats between uh, friends, Twitter stuff, threads, somehow it came up. That's why your name was associated with this movie in my mind. And when I started thinking about it recently again, I thought, who could I invite to the podcast to talk about this? And your name, as I said, was the first thing that came in my mind. And I'm very happy to have you here. I was not aware you love it that much. This is going to make for a good conversation. It's one of the things I look forward to. People making the case passionately. And that means for things they love primarily, since you have to first love something to really pay attention, to see it properly. And the movie itself, I think, makes that point to an extent. It was a very troubled production. David Lynch first made a long 90-minute pilot for ABC back in 99, and it was just canceled. And later, everything associated with it was destroyed. But then he got more money from a French studio, And that's how he managed to turn it into a movie once he got past the miserable failure the first time around and thought about the story all over again. And I think the reception was mixed. Mulholland Drive opened in Cannes in 2001 to great applause. David Lynch won the Best Director Prize there. He even got an Oscar nomination, although, of course, he's never won a competitive Oscar. It's not He's not the kind of director the Academy <laughs> likes. His movies often do not make money. But everybody who has seen them somehow realizes that he's one of the important directors, maybe a master. It's not just because he has a distinctive style. 
or because he looks back at mid-century America with a loving, but also with a strangely disturbing eye, as unusual ability to see that there was trouble as well. There was evil in America as well, not just the great family 50s, the triumph of the middle class, let's say. Especially in the case of directors like David Lynch, you need to love the stuff to be able to think about it and maybe deepen your appreciation for it by thinking through why we are so interested in stories that are, you know, incredibly disturbing. There may be what Hollywood aims at often enough, but shies away from in almost every case. There's a depth there, there is an artistic reflection that wants to show the audience what it means to start thinking through the moral drama that makes us human, as opposed to the glamour behind which we hide that troubling stuff. So very briefly before we start our discussion, the for the sake of our audience, Mulholland Drive is, I guess, described as a kind of noir movie because the previous movie he had made, Lost Highway, was a kind of noir movie. It's a Hollywood story. Mulholland Drive is somehow next to Sunset Boulevard. It's a reflection on Billy Wilder's famous 1950 noir. It's a reflection on the dreams that take Americans still to Hollywood and what happens to those people sometimes, how you can lose your soul, so to speak. It's the story of this young lady played by Naomi Watts, who arrives in Hollywood and she seems pure and uh, uncomplicated and uh, very joyous and she's going to be an actress, she thinks. But the story turns out to be in incredibly nasty. Far into the movie, we seem to think that all her Hollywood story was a dream that in reality she's an actress who tried to make it and didn't make it, who fell in love with a lady who became a star and uh, was rebuffed and now she hates herself and the world and pays for a contract killer to put an end to the misery. It turns out to be a story of unrequited love, which after all is the story of most actors with Hollywood. It's the story of most people who fall in love with celebrity. It's a love that must be unrequited and can become quite terrible. It's part of the talent of David Lynch to suggest for an hour and a half or so of a movie that's not quite two hours and a half, that there was something innocent in this girl that she has some capacity to think of herself as a good human being, and that at the same time, there's a great trouble in her heart, which erupts ultimately in murder. Unrequited love is a much bigger deal than we admit these days. For example, in Hamlet, when he starts complaining about why life is so hard, he's very humiliated because there's injustice and because the rich are arrogant and the powerful and so on. The thing that really seems to obsess him is unrequited love. In a way, it's the, the most humiliated thing because it's the thing that goes deepest in the heart. And this is what's happening in this story as well. Lynch somehow spins it into uh, an existential story. Maybe it's because we Hollywood doesn't just offer us pleasant stories, but it offers us a vision of American morality. And maybe we shouldn't believe in that. Well, that's my preliminary series of observations and thoughts. And now, Sorab, since I would not dare to go as far as you daringly have gone, this is your favorite movie. Tell us, how did you fall in love with the movie, first of all? And how do you think about it? Well, I encountered Mulholland Drive when I was, basically when it when it came out. I watched it when it came out. I happened to have only immigrated to the United States recently. So I immigrated to the US in 1998. The movie came out in 2001. I didn't see it in the theater the first time, unfortunately. I probably saw it in 2002, let's say, on video, as we often did back in the day. You went to a rental store and 
like picked up a VHS, which all seems so ancient and distant now. But at any rate, I watched it during a period in my life where I was particularly fascinated by, let's say, continental critical theory, generally speaking, what extends from, let's say, Nietzsche and Hegel into the 20th century with various strands of Marxism and structuralism, post-structuralism. I was into that space intellectually kind of generally, but specifically also in its intersection with psychoanalysis. I was a devotee and in some ways still am. I think he can be quite insightful of Jacques Lacan, a French Freudian, not not a direct disciple, but a French Freudian who was quite influential. So I saw a movie in which it seemed to me certain psychoanalytic concepts specifically about the meaning of dreams and fantasy and how we use fantasy to cope with the real, which is traumatic and horrible in, in many ways. So I saw it and, I, and I, in some ways, the first time I saw it as confirmation of certain Freudian and Lacanian theories. And I enjoyed it in that way, which is not necessarily the way to really enjoy a movie, right? To go and say, aha, see like XYZ in the plot maps onto the coordinates offered to us by Freudian psychoanalysis about the workings of the unconscious. But over time, I kept going back to the movie at various, you know, retrospectives when it was made its way back to the silver screen. I tried to see it. And then recently, Criterion, not too long ago, put out a beautiful sort of ultra HD, 4K, Blu-ray, and I have two copies. Talk about weird and obsessive. Here's a confession. I want, in many cases, to have one unopened Criterion Blu-ray and one which I use, which is the operative edition. So I have two (laughs) Blu-rays of of Mulholland Drive. In some sense, it could be like a kind of OCD confession on my part. So over time, kind of the psychoanalytic reading of Mulholland Drive, which is very prominent, is subject of enormous amount of text spilled from that intellectual world about this movie hasn't receded it's still there but i've just come to just enjoy the movie for its own sake you may be hearing my daughter in the background screaming and i apologize it's one of those days where bizarrely schools are like oh it's a working day for teachers so therefore you have to deal with kids even though you're supposed to work full-time as well but at any rate i've just come to enjoy the movie for its own sake, even as my reading of it is informed by psychoanalytic theory. And what I mean by enjoy on its own terms is as an extended nightmare, frankly. It is the closest thing to my conscious experience of what it's like to go through those rare cases of dreams that are kind of somehow extended and have a narrative quality of beginning, middle, and end, even though it's all jumbled and bizarre. It's like entering that world, especially of a discomforting dream that stays with you. And so I think the great achievement of the movie, beyond what it says about the workings of the unconscious and the role of fantasy in trying to mediate the real for us, is just that visual and auditory experience of what it's like to live through an extended nightmare or experience a nightmare on celluloid. That's a good maybe introduction. Yeah, I was not aware that you had so much of the Lacanian influence. And I think you're right that there is a remarkable similarity there. But also I share your suspicion of these kinds of correspondences. I think there's something about all of us who have an intellectual bent that we like to play this kind of clever recognition game. Oh, this is that. 
this is that. I suppose it starts with uh, children who learn stuff. Uh, the recognition gives them a kind of joy, not least because life is less chaotic. You develop memories. We tend to think these are good things. But also, of course, has to do somehow with how we're educated. You got to give the right answers in school, in tests. You have to perform your intellect for adults to be applauded. It's somehow part of growing up. And I think we, we might let it go too far. I think part of David Lynch's cinematic art is a counter to that over-intellect and I'm with you on this. The spellbinding character of the movie is maybe the only way to put you to the extent possible in the position of the character. You feel to some extent trapped. You have to follow along with this story that for a while is quite sweet with just disturbing notes, but then the disturbing notes get uh, longer and you can't forget about the weird images and you know that somehow something is coming that will put an end to things. Will that explain what's going on? I, I don't know about that. So I think uh, you're right. There is a lot of the apprehension that we feel in dreams in the movie. And and that's on the one hand, uh, as I was saying, a kind of defense mechanism. If theory is that good, if psychoanalysis is that good or what have you, then we don't need art anymore. We don't need poetry. We don't need visual poetry we can just take another course in college or uh, do something like that. So I understand, I think, why poets and writers try to defend themselves against this over-intellectualism, against this over-theorizing. But I think, on the other hand, part of their defense is, if you will, offense. It's forcing us to put ourselves in the situation of a character who feels that life is maybe over and she can't understand how did it all go so badly wrong. She feels trapped in a situation that she doesn't understand and therefore doesn't realize where it might lead. So this is not, I think, rare in the movies of the masters. They somehow try to give you through art something correlative to the experience of the character so that you take it seriously, that, it's, that you take it personally, at least. It's not necessarily the same thing. Maybe it's the beginning. I remember when I saw this movie when I came out of college, I think, so a few years after it came out. And the first, I was to an extent repelled. It seemed manipulative, so to speak. Maybe that's because I saw in college a lot, and in high school, a lot of old Hollywood movies, which I dearly love. And at the time, I thought David Lynch is somehow making fun of 40s or 50s Hollywood, and this is really not okay. But also because uh, I wasn't aware of where he was going with this, because I was not at all willing to put myself in this lady's position. It took me some time to change my mind about this movie and to realize that uh, maybe I should start where David Lynch wants me to start, look at it in the way he, he presented it, not in the way I expected it. And then I thought, I think there's something to my intuition about the problems with uh, old Hollywood glamour, but it's a much more complex picture. Uh, over the years, I've come to think that David Lynch liked the mid-century America in which he was born. The stuff that you always see from Twin Peaks and uh, Blue Velvet onward, he really saw in that earnestness, in that innocence of America, something really good. And I think he also saw something there about both American character and what the cinematic audience is like. There's a kind of innocence when you sit down to watch a movie. I'm a film critic, but I still try to look at movies that way, to enjoy the story, to go along with what's amusing and amazing in it, and not try to criticize it, so to speak. And let instead the, the drama come out of the story itself. And I think with Mulholland Drive, just uh, watching it again today, preparing for this conversation, 
the opening montage where there's all these 40s kids jitterbugging. It's much weirder than it had seemed to me before. Very good opening sequence, but there's something odd about that dance itself. Very energetic, boys and girls doing these acrobatic moves. And we tend to think of it as joyous, I think, nowadays, because there's something nostalgic about the 40s. But there's also something very strange in that energy. It can look like a struggle. It can look maybe a bit disturbing or ugly. So already these two aspects of what is it that we want out of Hollywood? We want that all-time glamour. We want to be Humphrey Bogart or Cary Grant or who knows what. It has a much bigger effect on people than they realize. And this is why it went from Hollywood TV and all the way nowadays to computer games that still imitate that glamour, those stories that try to offer you a kind of moral certainty. This is a character you can rely on. And the character becomes a star, and this is a star you can rely on. Throughout his career, anytime you see, I don't know, Tom Cruise on screen these days, like America with Top Gun Maverick. The whole country felt uh, not exactly redeemed, but grounded and in a way confirmed because that story came out. I think this is the stuff that disturbs the Lynch and I think I learned to be disturbed by it by looking at his movies and realizing how beautiful the art is and also how sensitive it is to a country that uh, he loves but is disturbed by. So that's I, I think how I came around to really really admire this movie and constantly return to it. There's one thing we can sort of dispense with, which is because the movie has this mysterious dimension, this dreamlike quality with seemingly hints scattered throughout, it has been also the subject of enormous sort of micro-analysis by fans, including these websites, which are still fascinating because they're like early 2000s websites and they're kept in that same shape you know if you can remember what the web looked like in the early 2000s very simple with like times new roman font and they are explorations of the mysteries of mulholland drive and numerous intricate theories of what the movie really means and lynch himself fed this frenzy for answers i think with an early home video release or maybe at the time the movie was released in in the theaters he put out seven questions that you should try to ponder i can't remember if it was seven or ten and it's like what's the meaning of the blue key you know etc etc and it can it, it, the movie invites this kind of obsessive analysis and i basically am not interested in that too much so i'm not one of those people who can construct the various theories who is the dreamer what is the role of the the old couple at the beginning because they're in the dream why do they appear very small? I like there are the central mysteries of the movie, which which drive me and bring me back to it. And I'm happy to talk about. But the sort of micro fan theorizing, I find, you know, amusing. And I sometimes when I want to fall asleep, I'll look at <laughs> look at these old websites. It's really worthwhile um, just to see the level of detail that people have developed for each of their own account of what the movie ultimately means. But I more or less take the sort of quote unquote conventional interpretation of the movie, which is the one you offered in our very astute opening synopsis of the movie, which is very much runs in parallel to Lost Highway. In other words, I see the two movies as somehow parallel pieces. In both cases, you have subjects who have profoundly failed in life, and they've both failed in the dream factory. In the case of Lost Highway, you know, the protagonist is a is a jazz musician, presumably it seems like successful somehow playing underground clubs, but he fails in his love life. He's, he's basically impotent. And there's this utterly shatteringly painful 
scene, you know, in, in the bed with his partner, he just doesn't manage to get it going. And she sort of just taps him on the shoulder in the most condescending way and says, you know, it's okay. It's okay. And he murders her. And then the movie goes into his fantasy of recreating what could be or what the ideal of what he wants to be. And in the supreme Lynchian move, which is so identical to often how we dream, even the fantasy version begins to break down, right? The fantasy version of himself as this ultra cool, you know, very virile and masculine kind of mechanic type, working class, rough hands, you know, takes charge, takes risks begins to break down in some ways in the way that dreams do you know like the fantasy coordinates become scrambled as well and he can't sustain even the fantasy as the movie drives forward and the same process I think plays out in Mulholland Drive in the sense that we begin in this case with unlike with the other one where we begin with the real world and then dip into the fantasy here we begin with Betty's fantasy the Naomi Watts character what what she wants the world to be like how she tries in fantasy to uh, repair the things or make sense of the things that have gone wrong so why you know why is she not picked for roles it's not because you know whatever in Hollywood, most people don't get the roles they want and, you know, just end up suffering, as you said, in terrible apartments in Glendale or something like that. It's not that it's because there is some sort of evil conspiratorial agency that is ordering the director to pick the other woman instead of her and so on and so forth. So and but then even there again, the Mulholland Drive case, the fantasy begins to break down, it starts to get fuzzy around the edges. And the horrible real keeps intervening into the fantasy until she can't sustain it anymore. And then we see her that here's what really happened. You know, she was in love. Her lover ditched her for a famous director. She's left here seething and resentful, hires a hitman, commits suicide. And that's her, the tragic ending of uh, uh, Betty slash Diane. So there's a lot to explore there. But I think the parallels between the movies and I j again, just my point is that I take the more or less conventional interpretation that in both movies, the protagonist is trying to confront a horrible reality with fantasy and the fantasy ultimately breaks down as well. Yeah, uh, I think that is the way to begin. I think there's a reason the artist makes his work of art in a certain way. I, mean, I, I trust David Lynch on these things. I, I will go along with him. And I believe you're right about the comparison, the man story and the woman story. And, you know, that, that would be a great theme for another podcast, Lost Highway. For Mulholland Drive, the oddity of of this starting with some kind of fantasy on the part of this failed actress. I think everybody has to have that. I uh, Maybe the easiest way to say to understand Mulholland Drive nowadays and uh, its reflection on America would be to look at every American kid on TikTok. Don't they all want to become celebrities? Don't they all organize a kind of fantasy life for themselves in which things work out? Vision of America in which they are successes in a beautiful vision, a vision that is complete and perfect. This is what the stars gave America, and this is what the social media is trying to give America. And of course, uh, as you said, the fantasy keeps breaking down. It turns out that trying to take control over your life or over your destiny through fantasizing is not going to work. 
there's always going to be somewhere at the seams reality breaking in. And part of the reality that breaks through the fantasy is that there's something ugly and even violent in this desire that can lead a person who imagines herself like Diane imagines herself as Betty. Uh, you'd say like a Midwestern girl. She comes from Canada somewhere in Ontario, small place. She's supposed to have all of those virtues, all of that niceness. How could she turn into this sort of desperate person who hires a murderer to enact her revenge fantasy? And that too, you know, that it's a revenge fantasy, it's enacted by somebody else. Maybe there is something ugly in wanting this much perfection. Maybe there is something in the idea of making it that if you don't make it, you're not human anymore. That you invest so much superhuman uh, beauty, what we call glamour, that if you don't have it, you might fall below humanity into something quite bestial. David Lynch is, is never shy about showing this relationship between angelic fantasies and demonic possibilities that people aren't aware they i think it's only by starting from this fantasy where she's such a nice girl and she might make it but then no the mob and all of these conspiracies are getting in the way she's not going to make it only by starting with that desire and that possibility is it even possible to understand how could this happen and so i think what people call surrealism in david lynch is just saying no this is really what happens to the human soul this is really what happens in people's lives. But when you show it to somebody, they don't believe you. They say it's surreal. They say, oh my God, his imagination is so inscrutable. It's not that inscrutable if you look into the hearts of human beings and what troubles us. People do get angry and get murderous thoughts. People do think of themselves as perfect and therefore wrong. And also they think of themselves as nothing. Uh, you know, you love somebody, they don't love you back. You might feel that you're nothing. These things happen. <laughs> It's just uh, very, very hard to talk about them and uh, harder still to make artistic statements or visions presented to an audience that people will take seriously, that people will admit, yeah, somehow this speaks to things in my heart. It speaks to things in my life that I maybe don't talk about much or don't consider seriously, but maybe I should consider them. And that's how I felt when I came to believe that I understand something about this movie. Now I know why it speaks to me and in a way why I rejected it at first, but then grew to admire it so much. What you're saying is that Lynch is a moralist. He is not merely surreal for surrealism's sake, but rather the sort of surreal, grotesque images have a hard core of moral insight. I think that's exactly right. And again, I won't go into his other movies, but we see the same pattern replicated in, in, in Blue Velvet, for example. The moralism is what I mean. But, you know, there's also, like I said, there's just the sheer capacity to translate dreamlike images into visual form, into, into moving images. And so for me, for example, there are just bits and pieces of Mulholland Drive that I can never put out of my mind. And I say that with great reverence for Mr. Lynch. There are a few, I mean, in, in Mulholland Drive, there's the infamous scene of, no need to go into the details, but one of the side characters who happens to be at this diner in the real world version of Diane, but shows up in a sort of distorted form in the dream version and in the dream version he recounts this persistent nightmare that he has so it's a sort of nightmare being recounted within a within a larger nightmare and he says you know th there's this guy behind this diner 
who is absolutely terrifying me. And he recounts the dream in great detail and, you, and the anxiety builds in part because of the sort of low hum of the synthetic music in the background of the, of, which is, pervades the movie as a whole. And as he describes his nightmare, you, you know, you as the viewer, your anxiety sort of increases in tandem, ratchets up. And then his friend says, let's go out. Let's see where, where this, you know, this bogeyman of yours is. Your expectation is built to say, hey, see, there was nothing there. You were being silly. It was just the dream. And then the creature actually comes out. The, this demonic hobo actually confronts him on the screen just for like one or two seconds. It's just utterly, utterly terrifying. <laughs> I think it's one of the scariest sort of 30 seconds in film. Well, I mean, it's long. If you put the whole sequence, it's several minutes long. But that in encounter where you think, you think it's going to be diffused, but it's not. The nightmarish creature is there. It just is astonishingly effective as a piece of horror. There is the kind of hilarious and simultaneously sinister troubles that the, the, the dream version of the director played by Justin Thoreau has. Again, she, Diane, the, the real person, is trying to construct an account of why she's not picked for the movies. And so, again, he, she turns to this like mafia-like conspiratorial agency who intervenes in the process and he's settling on Betty but then this agency kind of appears and says you know this is the girl and that's it it's just an injunction coming from above and as a strong spirited creative type he like rejects it he's, I get to pick whoever I want and then they begin to turn his life upside down to punish him for his refusal to go along his life utterly becomes a hell <laughs> you know his credit card is cancelled his wife you know turns out to be cheating on him like everything that could go wrong goes wrong until he su he submits and that sequence of images is both really funny but also there is a you know again although it's surreal it has an element of reality as well in terms of how we experience life sometime in modern life where everything that you can imagine seems to go wrong if you can imagine that there's some agency some evil force some mafia type entity that's directing your misery it actually would be somehow satisfying it would be consoling to think that there's one person or agency that's directing the chaos that sometimes racks all of our lives but in fact in reality often there isn't it's a kind of structural issue or it's a combination of structure and bad luck and what have you so i just i love that sequence of Justin Thoreau's troubles as a as soon as he says no to this group that's insisting he cast someone else for the movie it's just like everything starts to go wrong to the point where he finds himself in this motel with his credit card canceled this kind of roach motel it's genius just the combination of image and sound itself is indelibly carved in my mind yeah i think you're right there is something about the director situation that it's the funniest part of the movie but uh, you also see to, to what extent it's played straight. And uh, you see, because, yeah, if, if it happened to me, I would believe it. I would be miserable about it and trying, like so many people, to form a conspiracy theory that at least consoles me. Because as you say, it shows there's order out there and that the order makes sense from my perspective. I am important somehow. I am important enough to be oppressed. I am not important enough to be oppressed, let me tell you this much. But I guess it would be nice to think so, you know. It's hard being a nobody from a certain point of view. And maybe the whole movement from there's an actor trying to make it to here there's a director who's oppressed by the system shows also how Hollywood is somehow breaking down. The fantasy of the fantasy machine itself doesn't work that well. For there to be it girls, she's the girl. 
uh, there has to be some system picking them. Of course, then there were, there are troubles concerning that system. That's part, as you're saying, of how the fantasy breaks down, how even to imagine it, you have to imagine more and more control, more and more things turning a certain way, fixing a certain way. And uh, that's not ultimately sustainable. Now, this is not to say that there's not a lot of shady stuff happening in Hollywood now or in the 40s or any time in between. Of course there is. It's true that one reason people are so angry about conspiracy theories is that there are so many conspiracies. But that's not to say that a given person is caught in the crosshairs. That's a strange fantasy of self-importance that I think, again, shows why directors might turn to image making and to dreams to speak of existential and moral issues. Somehow fantasy has largely replaced morality in our public discourse. People will always talk about their image or the, the optics or what have you, but they almost never talk about judgment or character. Those are, you know, 19th, maybe 20th century concerns. The language isn't even there anymore. So the art also has to show that we are image makers to a much greater extent than we used to be. And the fact that we are self-conscious, that we are trying to craft our images on social media or what have you, does not mean we are any wiser. This new degree of sophistication might be a new degree of deception. It might be the opposite of wisdom. It might be further self-deception because we think we are in control of the images and the image making and therefore of how other people might react to us and might make us succeed. It might work no better for the audience of the movie, so to speak, than it does for the protagonist of the movie. I deeply, seriously uh, think that Mulholland Drive is intended as a warning to people. It's a warning both about how you can deceive yourself, that your motives are that pure, and uh, about the corruption that follows from the desire for glamour. Glamour is deadly. It's, it's so beautiful, it cannot be true. It's so beautiful, it cannot be good for you. It's going too far. And about the other scene you mentioned, the first scene in the Winky's Diner where these two friends meet, uh, one of them is very scared. The other one says, no, let's go check it out. We'll dispel it. That you could say in a way is bravery. And in a way you could say is enlightenment. Knowledge is good for you. Just find out. Just find out the truth. But it also reproduces, of course, what's happening with Betty. Her fantasy is that she finds a scared person and she tells the scared person, no, no, let's go check it out. Let's go find out who is in that apartment, who is in that bungalow, who is hidden there. What is the mystery of Diane Selwyn? It might not be good for you. It might not be enough to, to have that desire to know. You might need a, a, another kind of self-knowledge. You might need to be able to look at yourself honestly before you can face some of these things that can crush your spirit. Both of those are really good points. On the first one, the tyranny, let's say, of glamour or the tyranny of images. Arguably, you could think of Lynch and Mulholland Drive as quite prophetic about the social media age because of course the late 90s and early 2000s when he made the movie of course we were already living in a highly mediatized experience right cable tv the nascent internet etc etc but in post web 2.0 age the age of youtube tiktok twitter and the like the tyranny of images has gone on, has been hyper accelerated, has been massively, has massively expanded its grip on all of us. And you're precisely right that in the, in the world of images, right or wrong, truth or false, take second place or to take a back seat to good or bad images or effective or ineffective images, glamorous or unglamorous images. Think of the tens of millions of makeup influencers from professional ones who make millions of dollars to just sort of ordinary ones who are constantly creating these stories of themselves 
these little videos of themselves applying makeup, right? It's, it's a whole, it's an enormous industry. And of course, the sort of the L'Oreal and the Sephora, all these sort of manufacturers and retailers of makeup take advantage of that. But there is something sinister about that. There's something sinister about the idea of, you know, tens of millions of billions, possibly, of women worldwide constantly barraged with the sort of makeup ideal, makeup ideal. In that world, in that world of pure images of mediatized glamour, truth and false, right and wrong, become much less legible as categories. And so in this sense, he was prophetic. And then the second point you made was also, I, I hadn't thought about that. This is the lovely thing about Mulholland Drive and David Lynch more generally, is that it constantly invites these little insights and iterations on insights that build on each other of, you know, let's go see, let's go look may not be a healthy injunction. You may not may not be prepared to go see what's there. That's a really good point. I don't have much to add to it other than to adopt it as my own the next time I talk about the movie. But please do. I, I didn't think about it before you brought the scene up. But something about what you were saying made me think, you know, this really is the place where you see the whole drama of the movie. Just look at that one scene again. And uh, that's partly why we do the podcast is conversations, I think, stir insight. You hear somebody thinking about something and you want to think along with them. And it somehow reproduces part of what it's like to see the movie or following along with something in the hope that this all somehow adds up. You have a glimpse or a suspicion that maybe something that really matters is going on here. But I just don't know what it is yet, but I'm trying to work my way towards it. And that aspect of the work of art, I think, is what encourages the audience. I agree with you that there is something crazy about the people who try to turn everything into a puzzle and fix it. I think I understand what they're doing because, again, like the conspiracy theory, it's a way of making sense of things. But it's also a way of taking it out of yourself. You don't have to relate it to human experiences. You don't have to think about your own heart or things that happen to your friends or family or things that you're aware of from work or school or church or a community where you'd have to take the human being seriously. It's not a puzzle. It's people's lives. It's who we are. And I think it's why, in a way, it's necessary to have criticism in a way it wasn't in 40s Hollywood. The art, in a sense, is very sophisticated, but in other sense, it's very easy to, to set aside even by people who like it if it can be turned into an inspiration or a puzzle or an experience I've experienced David Lynch, but did you understand? Can you understand? I'm not even sure. It's a very difficult question because you have to confront somehow this mix of the beautiful images and the deeply disturbing moral stuff that I think is his way of pointing out that what we admire, the phenomenon of admiration, this deep human need is completely out of whack. It's turned into glamour. It's now, of course, as you're saying, everywhere there are underage girls, there are preteen girls watching the makeup videos. I think it's a lot bigger part of moral education than people realize because when nine-year-old girls look at this stuff, it's not just the beautiful images. They look at it because it's older girls and their attitudes and they imitate that. The makeup is the least part of it in a way. I mean, if we could pay that as a tax, can we pay untold billions of dollars but then they leave our kids alone, it would be worth paying. But of course, it's impossible. <laughs> That's the problem. It's impossible. The moral drama is the worst part because uh, people are obsessed with this kind of imagery. And I think that's because it's natural for people to want to admire things. And our society doesn't really offer things to admire that uh, decent people would admire. And so that creates this, this great distinction between beautiful images and deeply morally disturbing implications that David Lynch is always trying to show us. I think that's at least, not perhaps all of his movies, but many of his movies show you that. Look at the beautiful images. The more seriously you take them, 
more they drive you crazy, or at least you understand why people might be driven crazy. And I think, Saurabh, this brings us to the conclusion of our podcast. It's maybe as surprising in a way as the conclusion of the movie, but it's a David Lynch movie. It's We can't go through scene by scene, and in a way it would take some of the charm out of it. Whenever I watch the movie, something strikes me that... I talk to people about that. I try to think through that I find amazing. And I think over the years, I've built a few of these things, so to speak, to put together, not quite in a puzzle, but more in terms of asking myself, why is David Lynch such an impressive artist? Somehow people who like cinema know this. This is one of the guys. There's a short list, maybe 10 names. He's on it. And I think partly it's this ability to look at America to look at ordinary people and why in in such a nice country as America, there are these not nice industries like Hollywood or who knows what. How can you make sense? Like everybody loves their kids and they're nice kids. And, And on the other hand, there's the social media we have. I like to think that I'm a clever guy and that if people pay me as a writer, that's not wrong. That's fine. But you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and that can't be all right. There's something disturbing about what Twitter is and what we do on Twitter. So there's always this dark side in plain sight, organized as an industry, as you were talking about uh, just what's more superficial, but we would say in a way innocent than uh, girls in makeup. Well, there's a lot weird, actually, that's going on. Always playing a role, always putting on a mask. I don't think we're in control of it just because we're experts at it, so to speak. So I agree with you on that. And I think this uh, is maybe the best movie for showing that in all of the 10 or so movies David Lynch has made. For showing the how easily ordinary decent people could turn to evil. I'm not saying everybody's evil. I don't think that's what the point is. But it could happen to ordinary people. Why? Well, some of it is major social phenomena you can see if you stop to look at them. And I think it is very hard to stop and look at them. I think the the strange character of the movie reproduces that. It's not being obscure on purpose. It's not a game. It's not a pose. Anyway, this has been my thoughts, Saurabh, and I found this inspiring. I've thought up a few things more that I will uh, go now and write down. So thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for the conversation. And maybe let's do a Lost Highway thing another time to have a man's story correspond to the woman's story. Thank you for having me. I, I truly enjoyed it. I look forward to the next one. All the best and the best of luck with your upcoming book. I think when is it open for pre-ordering tyranny inc yeah it's available now on you know amazon barnes and noble or direct from the publisher penguin random house just search tyranny inc on any of your favorite bookshop wherever that may be and you can pre-order so all right folks this is already available in pre-ordering go online and see whatever you like to shop for books go get it all right so all the best with the book and all the best until the next time bye bye thank you bye (laughs) 